particular aspect that we do need to address in looking at this particular subject. Time magazine article that's asking the question about is the Bible fact or is it fiction? And when you go inside and look at that particular article, it's talking about how archaeology is one that is going to answer the question about the reliability of the Bible. Well, now this is kind of where, at least in the minds of some, we are. That we need the Bible and archaeology to answer the question about the reliability of, of the Bible. Well, that's so sad that that's where we are and where we feel like we need archaeology to make something believable. The Bible text is something that can stand on its own. And as you can see on this particular slide, if Moses was a man and not a myth, proof will have to come from digs like this excavation of an ancient wall in Jerusalem. Well, I, I don't think we need the, the digs to confirm anything about the Bible or about Moses. But nevertheless, that's the, the way a number of people are seeing these things. And then another U.S. Uh, News and World Report article is asking the question, who was Jesus? And again, notice the subtitle, A New Look at His Words and Deeds. Uh, well, this new look is talking about what is known as the Jesus Seminar. And maybe you've heard about the Jesus Seminar where um, these scholars from all over the world come together and they'll address particular texts that are found in the gospel, and then they'll vote on whether they believe that that text was something that was actually said by Jesus, or then they'll just kind of go down the scale to, he definitely did not say that, and they'll vote with these uh, different colored beads. So they're examining, for example, the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And these scholars believe that the only thing in all of that that Jesus might have said was our Father. Everything else is suspect. No, actually they would basically voted that everything else uh, was not something that Jesus would have said. And if you look here, so the red... Right there is the, the only part that they consider to be something that Jesus might have said. Okay, so <clears throat> we're not surprised at the number of attacks that the Bible receives. Because the Bible tells us how important it is. The Bible tells us, like in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, that it's going to be the basis of our judgment. And so you know that Satan is going to try to steal that seed, which actually is going to be a, a text that I'm going to talk about in our uh, Sunday evening service tomorrow night. And so hopefully you'll be here for that. All right, so we want to talk about the English Bible. The journey from the original languages to our English Bibles. The fact of the matter is, if you think about the Great Commission, the Great Commission is in itself 
implying the need for translation. How are you going to take the gospel to all the world if the gospel is not going to be translated into the various languages of the world? And so it assumes translations. And then we think about what happened on the day of Pentecost. And you have all of these people from all of these different places. Well, as we read the text in Acts chapter 2, the gospel was preached in several different dialects. So God has always planned for the word to be then translated into various languages. This should not stress us out. This should not even surprise us. And it should not push us out of our comfort level that the Bible has been translated and is translated into English. Okay, so going all the way back, this is what's known as an ivory diptych. It's carvings on the side of an altar in a Roman, an ancient Roman church building. And during this period of time, wars were everywhere. The Roman Empire had basically been broken up and people were in survival mode. They could not go to school. They were just trying to live day to day. And so the only way that they could ever learn anything about the Bible was through things like these ivory diptychs. They couldn't read for themselves. And besides, there were even numerous churches that didn't even have Bibles. And so this was how people were educated. And if you look at this particular ivory diptych, you can imagine sitting around this and somebody that knows the Bible story is telling the story. So if you look in the top right, you've got the raising of Lazarus. You can see Jesus who is pointing and Lazarus is bound there in the top right and he's coming forth from the tomb. The top left is the feeding of the 5,000. The, um, the middle right is, you can see the, uh, the six water pots and so it's telling the story of the turning of water to wine. Uh, the, the middle left is the healing of the blind man. Maybe you can see uh, Jesus touching uh, his eyes. The bottom left is telling the, uh, the paralyzed man, arise, take up your bed and walk. And then the bottom right uh, is the healing of the centurion servant. So that's how people learn Bible. That's how they learned about the Bible accounts and some of the things that Jesus did. This is a medieval picture Bible, which was a little bit later, but still it was like a comic book. And it was depicting some Bible scene with Latin captions, which most people couldn't read. It had to be explained to them. But there were many misconceptions that were created by things like this. Um, For example, if you look at the people, they are dressed like Roman monks of the 3rd century. Well, 1st century Jews did not look that way. They didn't do their hair that way. They didn't wear clothes that way. Um, And the furniture was not first century Jewish furniture. And so it it gave an impression that that was not realistic with first century life. And then occasionally there would be some false doctrine that uh, would be promoted. Uh, For example, in the second circle on the right column uh, going from top down, you've got a baby being baptized. Well, infant baptism was not something that was practiced in the first century. It is not a Bible doctrine, but it is actually a doctrine that came along about the third century 
A.D. And these medieval picture Bibles would have encouraged uh, the teaching of some doctrines that were not accurate. As we kind of jump through time, there was a guy by the name of Cademan, lived about 680 A.D. And he was one of the guys that first began writing some things, some Bible stories in English. Now, this is not yet a translation, but this is a Bible story. All right? Nay, Beoth, gay thy forthren, they the fairen brothe, sword Mingendra, Elora, Unrim. Well, in English, be not frightened thereat, though Pharaoh has brought sword wielders, vast troops. Helim, Elim, Vilin, Mithin, Driften, Thurnvine, Hand, to Dage, Thesin, Dagleim, Gifin. That's English. <laughs> That's ancient English. It says, To them all, uh, all will the mighty Lord through my hand this very day recompense give. Then we've got a guy by the, the name of Beatty a little bit later, who, uh, as you can see, lived the late 600s, early 700s. And he was somebody that also was instrumental in uh, developing certain Bible passages. As a matter of fact, he actually did some translating uh, himself. And so we had these things that were Latin-English interlinears. Latin was the language that most people were still speaking at that time. But we have stuff like the British Museum, uh, in the 8th century, the Latin Psalter in the 9th century, English translations. The Linden Far Gospels uh, were Latin Gospels written by a guy by the name of Bishop Edfroth uh, of Linden Far near the close of the 7th century. And then a guy by the name of Aldred uh, wrote literal English translations between the lines. And this is what those look like. And so uh, if you look at this, we've got the Latin here in the bold print. But you can see the English that is written right above that. And so this was really the beginning then of the Bible making its way into modern English. Again, another uh, example of the Gospel of Mark and the Lindisfarne uh, Gospel. And you can see that you've got all of the, the written in English in between the lines of these uh, Latin manuscripts. Now if we jump till about 1000 A.D., we've got what's known as the Wessex Gospels. This is the first independent English translation. Everything else was bits and pieces, a portion of the Psalms, a portion of maybe some of the Pentateuch books. But the Wessex Gospels was first. And again, if you look at this, so Lisi ut uta his son, his son, to son. And Tata, he saw Summa, his villain was vague. Well, <laughs> again, look at that and they say, well, I might be able to pick out a word or two. But that, again, is English. But then the Norman conquest of 1066 brought great changes to English culture. Norman French was mixed with spoken English so that before long, what we just read, most of the people that lived in the 11th century couldn't read. Because the language had changed uh, so much. And then as we jump forward even more into the 1300s, you got this guy by the name of John Wycliffe, lived in 1329 to 1384. 
He was a guy that was brought up in uh, Roman Catholicism, but he started questioning what it was that he was seeing that was taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. He encouraged the people to read uh, the Bible. He encouraged the preaching of the Bible. His followers, called Lollards, uh, were persecuted by the church because they were doing that which the church had uh, explicitly condemned, and that was providing the Bible to people in the common language. And they translated the, the Bible into English in manuscript form. And here is Wycliffe's translation. And as you look at this, uh, these things Jesus spake, and when he had cast his eyes into heaven, he said, all right, I think we're getting there. Uh, we can make out some of what that's saying. Well, that's the English spoken, written in the 1300s. Then the printing press was invented in 1450. What a change this made then to uh, the ability of the Bible to get in the hands of common people. The very first book that was printed by the Gutenberg Press is the Latin translation of the Bible in 1456. A Greek Bible was printed in 1514. Uh, and also this thing called the Complutensian Polyglot. This is what the Gutenberg Press looks like. You have these big sheets of paper that are slid in. And then he cranks this thing down and it presses it down on the paper. And then he unrolls it. It lifts up, pulls the paper out, sticks another sheet in, rolls it back down. Print, and it's an amazing process. And you can produce a lot of copies this way. Now I have a sheet in my library from the Gutenberg Press, and I used to bring it with me all the time to these things, and then I got to thinking, that's probably not very smart. <laughs> so I took pictures of it. So here are pictures of my sheet from the Gutenberg Press, and you are probably, if you're like most people, surprised at how beautiful it is, how amazingly clear, and the color is something that is just amazing. And so you can imagine that when people got a Bible that was produced by the Gutenberg Press that was that beautiful, uh, what a treasure it was uh, to have in their own personal collection. But it was pretty pricey too. But the churches also could get these. And so the Gutenberg Press now made the Bible available to a lot of different audiences that it was not available to previously. Now... I mentioned this Complutensian polyglot. This was something that also was done by the Gutenberg Press. It was the best study tool of its day. Polyglot means multilingual because this pro provided information in several different languages. For example, here we've got the passage that's open to Deuteronomy 32. And so you've got the Hebrew text. You've got the Latin Vulgate. You've got the Septuagint, the LXX, with the Latin interlinear. You've got Chaldaic, Latin translation, Hebrew and Chaldaic roots, all on this one particular page. And so it was, as you can imagine, just on this one page, the wealth of information that was there. 
Now there were originally 600 of these that were made, and there are only two known to exist today. Now, if you happen to have, like in your attic or something, a Complutensian polyglot, right? now would be a good time to bring it out. It's, it's worth millions of dollars, so uh, you ought to do that if you've got one tucked away somewhere. And then Martin Luther came along, and with his nailing his 95 theses on uh, the, the wall, the door of a church building, things are starting to change. They're moving fast, radical changes, because there were those reformers that saw that what the Catholic Church was doing in prohibiting people from reading the Bible for themselves was just not uh, God's plan. And so the... Uh, the preaching of the word became central in the churches. Now you would go to church and you would actually hear a sermon preached in your language. Imagine that. I mean, you think it's tough enough to listen to Mike. Imagine listening to him rattle on in Latin. Well, that's, that's, what, you, <laughs> that's what you would do back in the day. Is You wouldn't hear any whatever your language was, English or whatever. But... Martin Luther was the one that started preaching in German and people could come and for the first time they're hearing the Bible read to them in German and hearing sermons that are preached in German. So this is a radical change of what is taking place. And then we have this guy by the name of William Tyndale who was very interested in getting the Bible into the hands of people translating the Bible. He lived during the time of Martin Luther and the Great Reformation that was taking place all over Europe and Catholicism. And he said that people had the right to have their Bible in uh, their own language. Well, it cost Tyndale his life. They did capture him. They did burn him at the stake. They pronounced him as a heretic and tried to destroy uh, everything that Tyndale did, although they they did not succeed in that. But one particular account of Tyndale's life is very interesting, that he was in a discussion with somebody that was very powerful in the Roman Catholic Church, and he was explaining to this uh, Roman Catholic authority that he wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And the Catholic official said, it is better for the people to have the Pope's words than God's words. And to that, Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life very many years, I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scripture than you do. Well, that was his goal. And it did, in fact, cost him his life. But notice how that adequately or accurately shows us the way men like William Tyndale felt about the Bible and about getting the Bible into the hands of the people. This is one of Tyndale's translations. Actually, it was known as the Miles Coverdale Bible. But I show you this 
because the front piece is one that is very revealing and shows about how people felt about the Bible. If you look, for example, at the, the top left with the caption right there, the caption, you've got Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, and the caption says, These are the laws that you shall lay before them. And then right below that, um, on the, the bottom left, you've got Ezra with the book of the law, reading and explaining it to the people from Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. And then on uh, the top right, you've got uh, Jesus and the apostles with the words, Go ye everywhere and preach the gospel. And then on the bottom right, you've got Peter and the apostles in Acts 2 that are, is preaching the gospel in the language of the people. All right, here's the point, and understand the political uh, kind of rub that is being, the statement that's being made by this front piece of this Bible. The Bible belongs to the people. It's always been that way. It's always been God's plan. And the fact that Roman Catholicism has kept people away from the Bible, you have to go to the priest to find out anything about God and His will, that has never been God's plan. And you look at these four examples as case in point. That this was what God wanted. He wanted people to have the privilege of reading the Bible for themselves. All right. This is what it was called the Great Bible because it was so big. And the other Bibles were not well accepted. Uh, because it really didn't have the, the backing, obviously, of the Catholic Church, and it didn't have the backing of the uh, civil authorities as well. But this one did. A stroke of genius. If you want a Bible that's going to be accepted, put a picture of the king on front. <laughs> he'll, he'll like that. And he did like that. And so you've got King Henry VIII, I am, I am, on the front of that. And you've got... All the people down below, as I just scroll down to the bat, they're all saying, Vivat Rex, Vivat Rex, long live the king. So when the king was first shown this Bible, he put his stamp of approval on it, and now the Bible then was <clears throat> produced, and it made its way into a lot of churches throughout Europe. The Geneva Bible is that which came out in 1536, and it was the first Bible to divide things into verse numbers. Saying, wow, I didn't know that. But up until then, the Bible uh, was divided into chapters. And that actually was done by a guy by the name of Stephen Langton in the 1200s. Divided the Bible into chapters. And then the Geneva Bible divided it even further into verses. And so we say, and I know that you've heard in your Bible classes, the Bible verses and the Bible chapter breakdowns are not inspired. Well, they didn't even exist until the 1200s. And then the verses until the 1500s in the Geneva Bible. What is the Catholics going to do about what's happening? With the Bible being in the hands of the people, they convened the Council of Trent in 1546. And they decided that it was time, probably past time, for them to create their own Bible. 
It was at this council that they legislated that men should accept the Apocrypha, those 11 books that I mentioned in the last session, as a part of the Holy Scriptures or be anathema from God. And that was this council. But notice how late it was, 1546. But the people that knew Hebrew and Greek knew that these books did not belong with the Bible because of all the manuscripts that had excluded them. But you're really seeing kind of a uh, a yo-yo kind of environment. Because when Queen Mary was on the throne, she was Catholic. She restricted the reading of the Bible and yanked the Bibles out of these Protestant churches. But when Queen Elizabeth was on the throne, she was pre-pro-Protestant, and she put the Bible back into the churches and allowed people to uh, go and read the Bible. This illustrates something that tells an amazing story about this time and we're, we're still talking about the 1500s and early 1600s, is that for the most part, people did not own their own Bibles, but it was available. And it was encouraged in the Protestant churches for you to come and read a Bible. And some historians tell some very interesting stories about those Bibles that, first of all, had to be chained so that No one would steal it. But also that long lines would form so people would have opportunity to read the Bible for themselves. And you got 15 minutes. You got 15 minutes to read the Bible and then the next person in line got their turn. Would you do that? Would you stand in line, maybe in inclement weather and the the strong winds of, uh, of Texas to read the Bible for 15 minutes? These people did. They loved the Bible. They sacrificed in order for an opportunity to read the Bible with their very own eyes because they'd never been able to do that before. When we think about where we are, and I don't know, because I do seminars like this, I've actually counted the number of Bibles I have. I don't know if you've ever done that. Um, how many Bibles you have in your home, but I've got 36 Bibles at home. That's a lot of Bibles. How blessed we are to be able to have something that is so beautifully bound, all the books put together in one book. I don't know if the Tyndales and the Wycliffs of the past ever envisioned a day as blessed as our day, as blessed as we are, to have our own Bible, to be able to go to a store and buy a Bible for just a few dollars. It's an amazing time that we live in and they sacrificed their lives so that we could get to this point but I would tend to think too that there would also be some shame because so many today have Bibles but they sit on shelves they gather dust they're not open they're not read they're not memorized at all 
they gave their lives so that we might have a Bible, and then that's what we do with it. It's just one of the, uh, the shame of the world that we're living in today and the way that we're treating the Bible. King James VI of Scotland recognized that there needed to be a translation that basically everybody could agree on. At the time, there was the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Coverdale Bible, the Tyndale Bible, the Wycliffe Bible, the Protestant Bible, the Catholic Bible, which is called the Reims-Douay Bible. All these Bibles had different footnotes, and the footnotes, you know, the Protestant Bibles bashed the Catholics, and the Catholic Bible bashed the Protestants. And King James said, all right, enough of this. We're going to put together a team of scholars And we're going to make a Bible that can be uniform and accepted that all of England could use. So what he did from 1604 to 1611, got some 40 scholars that labored under the Royal Commission, that is, they were paid for their work, uh, to translate the Bible in the common tongue of the English people. All right, so here we are. Now we're going to talk about our English Bibles today. This particular chart has a lot of information that we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, but translations are analyzed with different criteria. And you go from the top left, word-for-word translations, to the far right, which is uh, known as paraphrase, and then in the middle is what is known as a thought-for-thought. Sometimes it's referred to as a dynamic equivalent, which what that means is you're trying to give the equivalent in modern English to what the Hebrew means or the Greek means. And you can see the translations that fall under that particular category. All right. The most famous Bible of all is the King James. And how many here still use the King James as your major study Bible? All right. So the strength of the King James contains Old English, and a lot of people love that. They love the the beauty, the poetry of the King James. I suppose, did you memorize the King James when I did? And uh, so even now, if I'm quoting verses, they're probably King James, uh, just because that was the Bible that we used and learned, memorized. It is reliable and dependable. You know, when we think about what we learned in the last session, that we've got the right books and that those right books were accurately translated and, I mean, copied through the generations, that is obviously true about the King James. Uh, It is a reliable and it is a dependable translation. It remains one of the most popular uh, Bibles today. There are, though, some weaknesses. It has 800 Old English words, 1611 words that no longer mean in 21st century uh, U.S. what they meant. So that's a, a weakness of the King James. It also is based upon what is known as the Texas Receptus, the TR. It's a Greek text that was created by a guy by the name of Erasmus. 
And what Erasmus had was a few late manuscripts that were probably 11th, 12th, and 13th century manuscripts. All right, so when we look at this Greek Bible, it's based on stuff that goes all the way back to the first century. And what the King James Greek text is based on is something that is over a thousand years later. We talked about thousands of Greek texts, uh, manuscripts that have been found that all bear witness to the text of the New Testament. Well, the uh, Texas Receptus did not have the benefit of that. So that is why, if you've ever wondered, why are there some passages that the King James has that other Bibles maybe in the congregation do not have, like the Eunuch's Confession in Acts 8 and verse 37, or like the Trinitarian Statement that's found in the book of 1 John. Why does uh, the King James have that and the New King James have that, but the other Bibles do not? That's the reason why, because the King James is based upon this Greek text, the Texas Receptus. Now, that is an inferior Greek text. Why is it inferior? Because it doesn't take advantage of the thousands of Greek manuscripts that have been discovered since 1611. And we always want to use all the evidence that we have available. As a matter of fact, let me say it this way. We always want to use all evidence that God gives us And I believe every time we come up with a new manuscript of the the Bible, a Hebrew text or a Greek text, that this is another gift from God to further confirm His Word. Remember when I was talking about uh, textual criticism in the last session, and I mentioned that scholars today believe that this is 99.5% pure. That's because of all of these manuscripts that we have available but you know what they also say that we're not far from their saying 100 percent 100 percent and the only reason that they can ever get to that point of certainty is because of all of these manuscript witnesses all right here's my point then the king james did not have the advantage of all of these manuscripts And so, as a result, it's based upon just a few late century manuscripts, and that's a disadvantage. And then there are some incorrect translations that are found in the King James. For example, in the Greek New Testament, there's different words for hell and Hades. But the King James wrongly translates the word Hades as hell. For example, the gates of Hell shall not prevail against it in Matthew 16 and verse 18. Well, that's not what the passage is saying at all. It's not saying anything about hell. It's talking about the gates of Hades shall not prevail against, the, I believe, the church and what it is that Jesus is doing. All right, so that has led people to a false interpretation of that passage in Matthew 16. And then it uses the word for bishop. This is a very Catholic term. And the Bible knows nothing about the idea of a bishop, one man being head over a church. But yet, 
by translating the word uh, overseer or elder with the word bishop, it uh, leads to some denominational ideas. He mentions Easter in Acts 12. Well, the holiday of Easter is not something that is biblical, and what is being discussed in Acts 12 is not what we would know as Easter. So there are some weaknesses to the, the King James. Did you know that those 40 men that translated the King James put together a little booklet that was called the Translators to the Reader? Now this is something that a lot of people are unaware of. We have people, and maybe we've got some here, that are militant for the King James. That the King James is the only Bible that we should have or ever have until Christ comes again. If that's the way someone feels, then they feel about the King James that the people that created the King James did not feel about the King James. Look at what these guys said. It is necessary to have translations in readiness. All right, so they believed that the King James was a good thing for then. But there needed to be more translations to come along later on. They said, you need to have the Bible translated into a tongue which people can understand. And there are a lot of words, 800 words as a matter of fact, that are found in the King James that don't mean today what they meant then. All right, that can create a problem. They went on to say that languages, excuse me, translations needed to be current, up to date with the language of its time. And notice this, they also acknowledged that their translation was going to have some imperfections and blemishes. They knew that they did the best they could with what they had to work with, but it was going to have some problems, and they admitted as much. Said, we never thought that we should need to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better. And that was their goal. They were not slamming the other translations. They were just trying to improve the translation of the Bible in their day and age. And so that was what these guys that made the King James wanted for the King James. As a matter of fact, if there would be a way that we could bring them back into modern time, they would actually be shocked that we're still using the King James because that's not uh, what they would have wanted. But nevertheless, it is a good translation. I'm sounding like I'm anti-King James, which I'm not. It is a good translation, but understand that it does have uh, some weaknesses. Who uses the American Standard as your major study Bible? Okay, I don't see any hands up, so we're just going to skip through that. Does have some problems. Revised Standard, 1946. Anybody use that as your major Bible? Okay, I'm going to skip through that. 22 top scholars with the Revised. Came out one year before the most significant discovery of all time. And that killed the Revised Standard. It really did. Uh, you produce a Bible in 1946 and 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, 
they used a lot of scholars from different denominations, including Jewish scholars. It does have some problems. Their goal was for it to replace the King James. Never worked. New American Standard. Do we have anybody that uses NAS? All right, got quite a few there. Came out in 1963, and then we've got the 95 update, uh, and there's going to be a 2020 update that is now in production. It's going to come out next year. Uh, very conservative, 58 scholars involved in the NAS. Um, took advantage of recent discoveries. You do need to know, though, if you use the New American Standard, that it has premillennial preferences. And those are not so much in the translation, but in the footnotes and in the, the, um, the page headings. So just be aware of that. It is a good overall translation. It does have some inconsistencies. Some of the things that people like about the NAS, it put poetic material in poetic form, printed verses as separate units, which uh, you could isolate the verse and kind of study it that way. It is an overall good translation, especially the 1995 update. It does have some problems. For example, it doesn't consistently translate the same Greek and Hebrew words. So you've got the inspired writer keeps using the same word, but our translators are translating it with different words. Well, that means that we never know that Paul keeps using this same word. Well, we kind of need to know that. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. Ephesians 2.15, Jesus came to abolish the law. So uh, two different Greek words, and uh, I even wrote them, and I said, would you please eliminate the contradiction between Matthew 5.17 and Ephesians 2.15, and they proceeded to ignore me on that. <laughs> NIV, did anybody use the New International Version as your major Bible? Came out in 1978, 110 top scholars involved in that. Their goal was to provide ease in reading and comprehension, solid textual base. As we go through time, every new Bible has a better textual base to work from because we keep discovering more manuscripts. Generally conservative, although there are some questionable translations uh, like Romans 8 and the phrase evil nature for the word flesh. But those of you that use the NIV, it is a paraphrase in many places. And you need to know that. Uh, it is currently the best-selling translation. Translators admitted they were seeking more of a word-for-word, -word, uh, more than a word-for-word -word translation. So that's why it looks like a paraphrase. There were actually some Church of Christ scholars that were a part of the NIV. It does have some problems. In translation, like 1 Peter 3.21 and uh, 1 Corinthians 13.10 10 is not translated uh, accurately. There are some people like Ted Kyle who have commented about the NIV that I'll share with you. The translating philosophy of the NIV was what's known as dynamic equivalent. And that is, let's just kind of give the basic meaning of what the Bible is saying. Rather than translate the words, let's just give the general sense. Well, <clears throat> that particular translating philosophy has been uh, widely criticized. Kyle says, the dynamic equivalent has resulted in the impoverishment of God's Word. The deep things of God 
have been turned into shallow ponds. So not a big fan of the NIV and dynamic equivalent translations. Another scholar by the name of Leland Ryken notes that dynamic equivalent translators have themselves become the counterparts to medieval Roman Catholic priests. The reader is just as surely removed from the words of the text as the medieval Christians was. Well, what he means by that is you would go to a Roman Catholic priest and he would tell you what it means. Well, that's what the NIV translators have done. They're not translating. They're telling you what it think it's, they think it says. And that's a danger. So he maintains that the whole premise, a dynamic equivalent, is faulty. So a word of caution to those of you that use the NIV. I would not recommend that you use it as your major study Bible. Find something else uh, besides that, uh, and you'll be better off than just depending totally on the NIV. All right, how about New King James? Who uses New King James? All right, got a lot of uh, New King Jamers here. Uh, 1979 is when that first came out. Corrected most of the words that had changed meaning. I mentioned 800 words in the King James. Well, the New King James fixed that problem with most of uh, the words. It did keep, keep the same textual base. All right, we talked about the Texas Receptus and that the Texas Receptus was done by a guy by the name of Erasmus and he had just a few manuscripts at his disposal. Well, the, the New King James did not change the textual base. Personally, I believe that was uh, a mistake, but they're still playing to the King James crowd and they felt like this would be the only way that they could make it work. <clears throat> it is a good translation. One of the things I like about the New King James is they do a better job, not a perfect job, but a better job of consistently translating the same Hebrew and Greek words. There are some problems with the New King James, and so those of you that use it need to know it did keep some outdated words like perdition. I don't think I heard anybody using the word perdition today, so it's not a word that we use. It would be better to have chosen a more modern word. <clears throat> and then it does repeat some questionable passages that do not have good manuscript support like Acts 8.37 and 1 John 5. How about the English Standard Version? All right, got several that use that. Came out in 2001. Did you know that the ESV is mainly a reproduction of the RSV? As a matter of fact, about 90% of the ESV is just the Revised Standard redone. Uh, they did make some changes. Attempts to be an essentially literal translation according to their uh, own claims. Overall, it is a good translation. I like it. It does have some problems. Like in Malachi 2.16, a passage that most people are familiar with, God hates divorce. Well, it doesn't say that in the ESV. It does repeat, and I am absolutely astonished that they repeated the same mistake that the King James made that Matthew 16.18 says in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't know why they didn't <clears throat> fix that. And then some other passages like 1 Peter 3 are awkward. 
So here's a newspaper article that said, yo, the wording changed, and some said it was good. <laughs> but you've always got some people that don't think it's good. The, the creating of new translations is something that people become uh, very uncomfortable with. But know this, and this also is one of the questions that I guess get asked a lot, and so I'll go ahead and answer that question now, is there will always be new translations generated, and the reason is because of money. There's a lot of money to be made because the Bible is still the number one seller in the world. And so if you can create an NIV, those people that made the NIV made themselves multi-millionaires by producing a Bible that became the best-selling Bible. And so that's always going to be our world. Now, that's the negative side. A positive side is using the new manuscript discoveries that are being made to get us to that 100% accuracy. All right, so let me offer some suggestions. First of all, use only major translations. Don't use those that are done by one man. It's never a good idea. If you have ever read about these translating committees, you know that they're assigned a particular book, for example, Ephesians, and then you're going to have a group of, of scholars that are going to discuss what the Greek text is saying, and they'll come up with uh, that. There's checks and balances, give and take. That's always the best way for a translation to be done. Use all the translations you can put your hands on. Don't rely on just one. If you're still someone that doesn't use electronic Bibles but still likes to have a, 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 a physical book in your hands, get one of those parallel Bibles that's got four different translations side by side. Those are amazing and very helpful study tools that uh, will help. And so when you study your Bible, get one of those resources. Third, remember that all major translations have some problems. There is no perfect translation. They all have problems, but truth can be learned. As a matter of fact, and I believe uh, Mike would say the same thing, I have studied with a lot of people, uh, Catholics through the years, and they've got their Reims a Bible. I'll study with them out of their, their Bible. Truth can still be learned in those, uh, those Bibles. I get asked a lot of why questions. Why did God do it this way? We're talking about not providing the originals, uh, years of time. Uh, why do we not have more ancient manuscripts? I guess having 6,000 is not, uh, not good enough. Uh, why do we not have 100% accuracy? I guess 99.5 is not uh, <clears throat> why are there still some textual problems? These things sometimes get blown out of proportion, and they're made bigger deals than they really should be. But the truth of the matter is that the evidence that we have is so overwhelmingly positive, and we're getting there to this 100% accuracy as time goes on. So what have we learned in our journey together, 
First of all, the Bible's claim to be from God is justifiable. It's not an empty claim. It is an oft-repeated claim, as we mentioned literally thousands of times in the Bible. It claims to be from God. That's a justifiable claim. Second, we've learned we got the right books. The 66 books that are in our Bible are those which are inspired of God and collected by the people of God. And the reason is they were written by prophets and apostles of God. And so we've got the right books. We don't need to be uh, worried about, well, I think there are some other books out there that uh, we needed to have. Nope. This process of getting the books and how these books became a part of the canon gives us confidence. We got the, we got the right books. The third thing that we've learned is the Bible was accurately copied through the centuries. This idea of the Bible being hopelessly corrupted through centuries of copying and recopying is just not true. Overwhelming, even scientific evidence to show that it was accurately copied. So we don't have the originals, we don't have the autographs, but those copies that we have were done well, they were done accurately, and so there's no reason for us to think that the Bible text uh, was corrupted. And then fourth, we've learned that our major English translations are dependable and reliable, and let me throw one more point in. Did you know that Jesus used a translation and so did the apostles? I can't say the number of times that I've had people say, out of all the things you said, that was a point that rocked my world because I'd never thought of it. Never thought about the fact that Jesus and the apostles used a translation. He quoted from the Septuagint, and that's the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So did the apostles quote from the Septuagint. And you know what? Most scholars, if a high percentage, if not all of them, say, and the Septuagint wasn't a particularly good translation. But Jesus used it, taught the people of God the truth from the Old Testament using that Greek translation, as did the apostles. And so if Jesus was okay with using a translation, the apostles were okay with using a translation, I think we're probably... uh, doing just fine with the translation as well. Fifth point, there's no legitimate reason not to believe in the Bible, to study the Bible, and obey the Bible. You have been given in these four sessions a flood of information. And I remember one time a lady said, you don't expect us to remember. (laughs) And I really don't. Except this, there are answers out there. When you read or you hear about these Bible criticisms, know that there are answers out there. And you might say, I seem to remember that short Italian guy saying something about this, but I don't remember what. But at least you remember that there was some information out there that answers these questions. That's what you should remember not to buy into these criticisms, which are many, but know that there are answers to all of these Bible criticisms. Jesus says in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. 
If God had not preserved his Bible and God had not made sure that our English Bibles were accurate, how could he hold us accountable on the day of judgment? Ever thought about that? How are we to be sanctified by the word of truth if it's not the word of truth anymore? If it's been so changed and so corrupted, corrupted and mistranslated, but yet the, the strength of John 17 and verse 17 still rings true, that we can be sanctified by studying and obeying the Bible. Peter says you have been, you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. How did their souls get purified? By obedience to the truth. Well, the same is true with us today. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. When I, I think about the information in this seminar, sometimes I just lean back from my desk and I'm just, I just marvel at how God has protected His Word despite all of the attacks and all the people that wanted it destroyed, all the efforts of men to discredit it. Here we are today. We've got our Bibles. We've got God's truth. We have everything that we need to teach us what we need to do and be to, to be pleasing to God. And we can thank God for preserving His Word for us. It is living and abiding. <clears throat> and so that brings us to Revelation 20, verse 12, where John is seeing the judgment scene. The dead, the great and the small, are standing before the throne of God, and they're judged from the things which are written in the books. I believe he uses the plural because he's talking about the books that those of the Mosaic age were going to be judged by, the books that they're those of the patriarchal age, and then our book, which is the New Testament, that's what's going to be open when you stand before the throne of God and I stand before the throne of God will be judged by that New Testament book. Are we ready for that day? Ready to be judged by this book? As we sing this song of encouragement, if there's somebody here that is not a New Testament Christian, you haven't repented of your sins and confessed the Lordship of Jesus and been immersed in the waters of baptism, we would consider it an honor and a privilege to help you in your becoming a New Testament Christian this afternoon. If you have done that, but you're not living as faithful as you know God wants you to be, then we would, again, be privileged to pray with you, study with you, whatever you need. We've got the front pews that are left uh, available while we're singing this song. If we can help you in any way, uh, let us know uh, as we stand and sing this song.